Welcome back to Unapologetically You. I'm your host, Kim. And I'm Tara. If you're just tuning in, go back. You need to hear part one of Danielle's incredible journey, where she meets the love of her life, has twins, a husband who's deploying for the third time all before she turns 21. And now, part two of Danielle's story. Post-deployment number two turned into pre-deployment number three. Um, And he was home for about six weeks. Um, And that was training, getting ready, packing gear, kind of learning like what the new mission is, what they need to be doing. Um, It wasn't the whole unit. It was just that small group that they kind of just built their teams off of. So when you know that he's going to go, do they have any idea how long he's going to be gone? Or is that just up in the air? So a typical Marine Corps deployment, full battalion, is anywhere from six months to 10 months. They usually don't go past 10 months. It's the it's usually like the army that you'll hear, they go for a year or 18 months and they come home for a break halfway. The Marine Corps doesn't do that. They don't ever go over a year. When they go, like when he went on his first two deployments, we knew, okay, you're leaving in January, you'll be home sometime in July. You're leaving in September, you'll be home sometime in April. So you kind of have that like month window We didn't really know what we were getting into, but on deployment day, one of his like leaders that's out there and giving them like their big pep talk because he stays behind and runs other units, um, told us this is like, this is going to be quick boys. We're going to be in and out in 90 days, 90 days from today. You are going to be back standing in the same spot. You guys are going to be home. Everything's going to be fine. And he was killed day 87. And they ended up being there like 120 days. When you guys were getting ready to leave, in your eyes, you were like, okay, well, while it was a short turnaround time, while he wasn't home for this dwell time that entire time, at the very least, it's 90 days. Like, that's what yeah. you're thinking in your head, right? And yeah. and were you out there when um, the, whoever was in charge of that group was, was giving that whole speech? Or is yeah. that just something you heard? You were out there and so you heard all that? Yeah, no, we were out there. Um, They're lined up on the deck, um, like getting their speech. And then, so you're out there for a couple hours. Sure. um, Just kind of waiting like for the buses to get there and load the buses and then they go. CJ was the only one that was killed on that deployment. There were injury, there were other injuries, but no other deaths. From the day that he left, how many chances did you get to communicate back and forth with them until that day? So I have a big binder for the twins and I still have in there like our little notebook piece of paper that had like the days counted down to the end of the deployment and the twins would check it off every day and they would mark Mm -hmm. on there if he was able to call. So I think he called maybe three times, um, but it's like 30 seconds or less. Like, Hey, I'm alive. Are you guys okay? All right. And that's it. So hard. And that's up. Mm -hmm. I guess take us through the day that like changed your life, right? So how did you, how did you find out? How did that work? They knocked on the door probably about two in the afternoon. I had had the twins down for a nap, still in my sweats, hanging out, waiting for them to get up from a nap to go to the gym. And my neighbor two doors down had just had a baby. So she was just like knock on the door all the time and come in. No big deal. So I didn't even look through the peephole. I just opened the door. Like I just assumed it was her or one of the neighbors. And then there was someone standing there and they gave you the speech, you know, 
we regret to inform you on behalf of the Grateful Nation. Um, and I just kept saying, like, where do I need to go? When can I go? Like, I thought he, I was just convinced that he was injured. There's no way that he would be killed. And it was like, are, what? And while he was deployed, there was a change of some of the mem- like some of the people. So the chaplain was there, but I'm like, you're not our chaplain. Like, what kind of scam is this? You're not our chaplain. He's like, no, I am the acting chaplain now. I'm like, no, 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 you're not, you know, and I gave his name. They're like, no, he's, he went to a new unit. And the guy that notified me, I'm like, well, I have never seen you before. I don't know where you came from. Maybe you have the wrong house. Like what's going on? He's like, no, I'm sent here from this. And um, so because the whole unit had not deployed, a lot of people were still in California. So they had let the higher ups know this is what's going on. And a bunch of them went to one of our sergeant's houses that was about 15 minutes away so that once they notified me, they could come over. And I just was just in shock. And I said, I have two small kids. Like I cannot deal with you and your paperwork right now. I need to get someone else over here. So I sent them two doors down to the girl that just had a baby. Her dad had been a Navy chief. I'm like, you need to go over there because I'm not going to talk to you until he talks to you. And he wasn't home. And so then my neighbor across the street had been a Marine and he just, you know, he did his four years and he was out. And I was like, you need to go get him. I'm not talking to you without someone else present. And then that's like when it was real, when I saw him coming across the street and I was like, uh, uh, what? I don't even know what to do. And then you have to start the paperwork. Like you have to sign that you understand what they're telling you. You have to start making flights as far as getting to Dover Air Force Base. So that's where you see them come into the States and then that's where they're prepared. Getting a hold of parents. So my neighbor ended up calling my mom because I like I couldn't function for anything else. And my brother was supposed to leave in 10 days for the army. And I was like, he can't leave. This is the only family member we have left. So as I'm signing my papers, like, okay, I need a flight for me and our two sons. This is their name so we can get to Dover for the transfer. Someone's got to contact my parents. I need them to be there too. I was signing paperwork at the kitchen table in my sweats for a delay for my brother. Because I was like, he can't leave for the army right now. My, I met CJ when I was 14. Brandon was 11. I was like, this is going to affect him too. He can't go yet. So we're signing papers for that. And it's just this like this whirlwind. Um, so he was killed on a Thursday. We flew all day Friday to get to Dover. I mean, we left so early in the morning. We didn't get there till there. So that was so fast. Like that yeah. was like oh, yeah. right away. So there really was no... There was no time then for you to even, like, obviously, they knock on your door. You're in total shock, disbelief that this is even happening. And then they're throwing how much paperwork at you that nobody in that moment is even no. really no. taking no. in, like, right? Did they, t- did they tell you how he died then, too? Or how did that work? They're not allowed. But my neighbor, who was a Marine, read through the notifying officers papers and found out. So I knew that it was an IED. Two of the guys ended up calling me when we were changing flights. And I was like, what happened? And they're like, we can't tell you. We can't talk about it. We're not allowed to, it's a security thing. So 
We flew all day Friday. When we got there, CJ's parents were there. My mom and my dad and my brother were there. They had flown from Chicago. I flew in with the twins, my notifying officer, and a husband and wife that were in our unit. Um, they sent them with to get us to Dover because they're like, how is, it, how is she going to get on the plane with these two small kids? Like, she needs right. hands. And then early Saturday morning, you go out to the flight deck and you watch from a distance and you watch them unload the flag covered caskets and they go from the back of the plane to a vehicle. And then that vehicle goes to the mortuary. So you can't get close and you're lined up there with other families that are also receiving bodies. So like, even in that moment, did, did it seem real then, you know, like, no, there's just kind of this like numb feeling and at least for me, I took on, I needed to make sure the twins were taken care of. They had just turned two. They didn't know what was going on. And I needed to take care of CJ. Mm-hmm. Like that, like, I don't have time to break down. I don't have time to, you know, feel sad. Poor me. I need to take care of this the way he deserves. So fine. And then Sunday, we all flew back to Chicago, start making plans. And then you have to pick, like, where is he going to be buried? Where are we going to have a funeral? How do you decide all of this? When he started in the military, like pre-deployment, mm-hmm. you know, through trainings and whatnot, did they ever talk to you guys about what something like this looks like? Or is this... No. So it's nothing that's discussed at all then, really? So really, you had no no idea what to expect going into all this? They give you... um a casualty officer that kind of is supposed to assist you along the way. So they, you know, this is where we need to be for the transfer. Okay, let's get your next set of flights. Where are we going now? And I said, well, I'm going back to Chicago. That's where everybody is. And then, you know, they go to the cemetery with you and say, okay, this is what we provide as the Marine Corps. And let's figure out these arrangements and, and all of that. And then, the blessing of the whole unit not deploying was that when he was killed, instead of having just people from a local reservist base, so you're still having service members as pallbearers, as flag folders, as stuff like that. Everyone that was involved in his ceremony, I personally knew. They were guys from our unit that had served with him for one year, two years. Um, And they just didn't go to Afghanistan for whatever reason. Um, So we were able to have them there. Like you just kind of said, like the blessing out of all of it, at the very least, is it's people that CJ even knew. You know, like this was his unit. Mm -hmm. These guys were able to do that for him. You know, be that presence for the rest of the unit that was still in Afghanistan. And so while we're in Chicago, they do a memorial service in Afghanistan for those guys to kind of, you know, grieve that loss. And so after they got home, like I got a video of that. And again, I was like, okay, he's in the States. Let's go, you know, because some people wait for the unit to come home. Some people you like, if he wanted to be buried at Arlington, that doesn't happen immediately. 
there's a whole process you have to go through. And I said, well, we're not going to do Arlington. Let's just have them in Chicago. That's where we met. That's where our family is. That's somewhere that's easier to access for visiting him instead of making a trip to D.C. And that was something you and CJ obviously never had previously even talked about, right? Nope. Um, anytime I tried to bring it up with him, he said it's bad luck. Like if we talk mm-hmm. about it, it'll happen. Just don't talk about it. And it's not just him. I mean, I've heard that across other service members or police officers or firefighters or anything like that. I've heard it. The funeral and was on Friday. His transfer, his, it's called a dignified transfer, was on Saturday. And we were able to have the funeral the following Friday, which cons- all things considered was actually very quick. Right. Um, yeah. And so then it's it's the same thing. They are flown in again. And it's another ceremony that you witness. Um, I had him flown into Pawaukee. Mm-hmm. I think it's Chicago executive now. Um, instead of O'Hare. I didn't want that. That it just It's just such a circus and a public thing. And that's not how CJ was. Um, I wanted something smaller. Um, so we had our family there. We had the you know some of the guys from the unit there because they were able to carry him off the plane. So many Patriot Guard riders. They mm-hmm. were lining the streets. And then we went to the cemetery and had the burial. So we did it in one day. I said, we're not, we're not dragging this out. It's, he deserves to be at rest. We're doing this on one day with, I mean, full military honors, the full, the full service. I knew a lot of people would be interested in coming because we had just finished high school four years ago. So that summer I came home for his funeral was the summer everybody moved home from college. You know, we were only 22. So I said that, you know, that Friday for the actual, you know, funeral and burial was family members and Marine Corps only. As it was, I'm sure it was like unbelievably overwhelming for you, for the Mm -hmm. boys, for your family, his family. I know people cared and I know people wanted to be there, but I had to draw the line. I said, we have to pull this back. There has to be a line. And then the following day on Saturday, we did a celebration of life. Anybody that wanted to come could come. Uh, I mean, there was a line outside of like outside and wrapped around the building, just trying to get in. The I mean, building. and what a testament to what an amazing person he was that that many people wanted to come and celebrate his life. Yes. I mean, I, I just every, I mean, Jesse White was there. Governors were there. Senators were there. I mean, there was just so many people, people from our high school teachers were there. Wives of the guys that were deployed had flown in or driven in. Um, So many people from our first unit had come in. We had finished the funeral and the burial. And it was kind of like, okay, now he's at rest. Now we'll do the celebration. Um, So that was on, that was on a Saturday. I wanted out. So at this point, like, are mentally, are you still like taking care, you know, like in the taking care of business mentally? (laughs) So, So it's still like that everything hasn't quite sunk in yet. Yeah. Shock and and just this is my duty as his wife. This is what he deserves. That's what I need to complete. What good is it if I'm just this mess and can't function? What's going to happen to my kids? Well, to you, you can't honor CJ the way that he deserves to be honored. Like, and that, I mean, that too, like that, that takes a level of strength that most people don't have 
ever, let alone at 22 years old with two-year-old little boys, and your husband tragically dies, right? Like this isn't, this isn't something you were prepping for even. So after you get through the funeral, then what happened? How long did you stay in Chicago? When did you go back home? What did, what did that look like? Uh, that was on Saturday. I was out of here by Tuesday. I wanted nothing to do with it. I had, I just wanted to get home with the kids in our space. And you have to start, you know, you start more paperwork, survivor benefits, you know, what are the next steps? What happens? Thankfully, we owned a house and we lived off base. So that wasn't going to change. But girls who live on base, you're given a certain amount of time to move off. And you decided you wanted to stay in California. You didn't want to come back to Chicago. Yeah, I was not ready to come back. Um, Did it feel more real then? Like, is that was like, what was the reasoning for that? You know, there was just so many people. I couldn't go to the jewel to get milk for the twins without someone knowing me. That makes sense. I just wanted to get home. So my mom helped me fly home. She stayed with me for a couple days. Then my brother came and stayed with me. I think it was like a week or two. And then one of the guys from our previous unit, he came and stayed with us for two weeks to help out. And then he left the day the unit came home, that everyone else came home. So in that time, I was seeing... Some of the people that were at the services with us, but he had known CJ since boot camp. He was in our first unit. He was at our wedding. Like in that comfort level too. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still very close with him and his wife and his kids. And, uh, but he came and stayed and he's like, I'll stay until, you know, everybody else gets home and then they're going to be able to help you with the next step. I mean, there were days that I was like, I, I cannot get up and move out of bed. He's like, okay, I'll change diapers. I'll feed the kids, you know, let's run some errands. Let's go to the beach. Let's do what we need to do. You know, let's keep you functioning. Make sure I ate. So one of the guys was involved with the, um, with the services brought me to the homecoming. But my husband's the only one that's not getting off that bus. That was when it set in. Everyone else was home and he wasn't. Because part of you is like, no, this isn't happening. Like he's still in Afghanistan. It's fine. This is just like a a nightmare. Your relationship the last several years was him either deployed or in trainings or working constantly to where this was a little bit normal for you to say, well, I still haven't seen him or talked to him. You know, it's not really in my face yet. Even going through the funeral, you're just still going through the motions of it all. Right. And yeah, because you're just so numb. The homecoming ended up being pretty late in the middle of the night. I mean, midnight, 2 a.m. kind of a thing. It was very late at night. I watched everybody get off the bus. Um, They went to their families, and then they all lined up and came to me to pay their respects. And by the time we left the base, the sun had already started coming up. So it was probably like 5 in the morning, and a bunch of us went back to one of the apartments and we're like okay now what and one of the guys that actually worked on cj what do you want to know and i'll tell you everything you've waited this long what do you want to know and they told me everything so at this point the actual military hadn't told you what happened at all it's a security thing like they they can give you a document Mm -hmm. i knew it was an ied i saw his body 
Um, but as far as like the events of what was going on that day, I didn't know. I just knew what the injury was. We had another memorial on Camp Pendleton. So that's for the rest of the battalion. That was with the guys that had been deployed with him. And then a group of us also had like a smaller ceremony. Well, I'm sure because they, because not being able to be there in person for the first one, they want to in some way have that, that moment with CJ and that closure too, right? I mean, I think that's only natural. Yeah, Yeah. right. Guys that were deployed saying, I wish we could have been there for you. I wish we could have been home. Guys that were with us feeling guilty that they weren't in Afghanistan when it happened. After this, as you were kind of going through the start of life after CJ, right? The new norm for you. This this unit that was still there, they were like your family, right? That was your extension to your family yeah. out there. But as you met new people, mm-hmm. was it something that like, were you comfortable sharing your story or were you just like, I don't want to, I've lived it for so long. I've, I've talked about it for so long. Um, not... It was never an issue in California because I didn't really meet new people. Like we already owned a house. I lived there. So there wasn't really anybody I had to tell my story to. Yeah. Everybody that was already in our circle knew. How about when you came back to Chicago? Was that, is that like a constant thing for you, honestly? Like, I mean, I know you've been here for a while now, but is it a constant? It is sometimes. Um, I've had people... So the twins were between first and second grade when we moved back, um, and they're now going into seventh. So it's been 10 years. So there's like the rumors flying around, like there's no way this is true, or like who made this up? There's no way. Um, But I think at this point, everybody pretty much knows, like we've done We've participated in Veterans Day assemblies or 9-11 assemblies. For the most part, everybody knows. In grade school, when you would have supply drop off and back to school night, I would tell their teachers. Just to prepare for that. Yeah. Well, for the twins, it's very normal. There was, I think they were in kindergarten and they played flag football and like the kids huddle up and the coach is like, okay, you know, which one's your mom? Which one's your dad? And they were just very, bl- my dad's dad, because it was, it was nothing I ever hid from them. They always knew. Well, and it's their life. It's their story. Yeah. It's part of their story. Now they don't say that, you know, they don't just like blurt that out. But when they're five, they don't understand sure. those social cues that you sure. say things right. like that. And so now that they're in middle school, I kind of, I let them if there's a teacher that they want to tell or it comes up in a discussion, that's their choice to make. Or they've met new friends in middle school because so many elementary schools come, come together. It's their choice if they if they want to tell that story. Well, and I think that's great just to give them a sense of like to own their story a little bit, right? You know, the, the fact that they were so young when this happened, it's still something that forever will be a part of their life. And at this age, the fact that they have the confidence yeah. to even choose to tell the people in their lives that mean the most to them is also amazing at that yeah. age. You know, that's there are some, there are some kids that definitely don't yeah. even want to talk about it, let alone feel comfortable enough to talk to a stranger at the beginning of the year in a new teacher. Um, last May, mm-hmm. our high school had honored CJ with the Distinguished Alumni Award. And I think this is the first time that they honored someone who had passed. And so this is not about me. This is not about CJ's parents or 
my family or anything like that at this point, this is something that Jack and Evan need to accept and participate in. I want the award given to them because last May they were 10. Um, and I said, they're 10 years old now and we're going back to our high school and they know that we met in high school and all that. I want this given to them. So I gave the speech, but then when it was time to actually present the award, they presented it to the boys. So to kind of give them that moment. How special mm-hmm. for them. It is. It's very special for them. Once everybody came home and you did the memorial services and all of that, and then everyone's life probably starts to go back to their, you know, yeah. normal mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever that looks like. Yeah. What did your new normal look like then going forward? Because by sometime between there and you coming back to Illinois, you have Gage, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens from the time when that happens to you, make, make you making the decision to come back? Um, in that time, we kind of just were figuring it out, still in contact with some of the unit, traveling back to Chicago. I met Gage's dad fall 2011, but we didn't start dating until December 2012. And then my dad passed unexpectedly February 2013. And so it was like, Okay, here we go again. Another, another funeral, another death, another loss, another, you know, influential man of your life. Like I had my dad and I had my brother and I had CJ as far as the men in my life. He was 54. And Friday night, I got a call from my uncle and said, your dad's on life support. You have to come home. Between CJ and your dad alone, like there are, I mean, I can hands down say I've never planned a funeral. Tara, have you? And we're talking, what we're talking 2013. So what, you were 24 years old now? Ish? Something like that? 25? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I was 24. So I was 22 for CJ and I was 24 for my dad. Like the life experiences that you've had happen to you and basically the first two decades of your life is Mm -hmm. some of the life experiences that people don't even have until they're in their like the sixth decade of their life. Right. Mm -hmm. And like you handled it all. And I guess like that's part of the reason why we wanted to tell your story so much is because everybody grieves differently. Right. And everybody, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my grandparents were great role models, like the role model in my life. Right. And when they died, it was, unreal you know and I was Danielle like right at your age at that time and I was not doing what you were doing like you totally went into this strength in your head in your body to get through it all and you took care of those boys Mm -hmm. in that midst had a third child yeah and moved across the country (laughs) again right and those are things that that I, that most people cannot do in their lifetime. Like the fact that you did that so young, you have a strength that I think that most people don't ever, ever even tap into. Right. And you live it every day. Right. And when people say these things, it's, I just kind of look at it as like, what other choice did I have? Things had to get done. Kids had to be taken care of. Honorable and respectable services had to be given. It was different for my dad as far as like more unexpected. Like, yes, CJ was in the war, Mm -hmm. but it's such a professional ceremony that you're following this protocol. And for my dad, it was, it was so different. It was all of these people that I had grown up with. So it was a completely 
different experience. But it was it was kind of the same thing. I stayed in Chicago for a couple days, made sure everything was handled. But I had come home um, October 2014. I was like, hey, I've got this kind of crazy idea. I might want to come home. Let's kind of like look around. And I wasn't sure if I was ready to leave California. Um, and then we were, you know, looking at other states, Texas, Colorado. I'm like, you know what? If we're leaving the state, it's time to go home. People finish their contracts. They go on to different units. And so it was kind of like when that was not falling apart, but changing. We flew home in November for like 48 hours, saw a bunch of houses, went back to California, and I made a decision. And I was like, okay, this is the house we're going with. This is what I want. Let's go. So it was like the first week of December, put in and got the accepted offer on this house. Middle of December, Nate proposed. Last week of December, got a positive. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Imagine that. Was it hard for you to say goodbye to California, knowing that that was the last place you were together with CJ? And oh yeah, it was very hard. There was quite a few trips back to the base for Memorial Gardens and beaches we used to go to together and. Driving away from the house was very emotional. And of course, on top of that, I'm how many months pregnant? It was just, it was very emotional to leave that that's where we had started our life together. We got married there. We bought the house there. He was stationed there. We brought the kids home. I mean, it was, it was extremely tough to leave, but it was time. You had been removed far enough from the situation of CJ that it's at least that distance coming home, You were, that same fear that you had of like running into people and having to explain yourself or talk about it all over again. Yeah. There was enough distance from that point where it, it felt like a restart. You're like, this is my new life. Yeah. And that's why we're so far out here. You know, we didn't move back to Palatine or to Schaumburg or to Arlington Heights like that. I couldn't be that close. It was very much a, a, a new start. And- so we moved in June and Gage, the twins started school in August, started second grade at a new school and Gage was born in September. In the time of your relationship with Gage's dad, you two mm-hmm. were living together in mm-hmm. this new house. Yep. How did it get to the point of you're no longer going to live here? We're no longer engaged. We both kind of knew maybe six months after being here, it wasn't working. There was just so many stresses with having a new baby and me kind of finding myself again, being close to home and having the strength of my family and him him being in a new situation. And, you know, we still have Jack and Evan, you know, never really getting to that point that we never had wedding plans. I mean, we, we tried counseling because I had just such a guilt that I was already raising two boys without a dad that I didn't want to do it again. But we were very good friends before we started dating. And I think there was just such a whirlwind of me losing my dad and he had lost his grandfather and um, he was ready to leave California before he was even dating me. He was ready to leave the state. And so it was kind of like, okay, this, this isn't too far-fetched from his plans. It got very, very bad, very fast fast and we could not get ourselves out of it. And when you're in that situation, like again, like you saying, finding yourself like, and of, of course you don't want your kids to not have a father, but at the same time, like you want to do what's best mm-hmm. for you and the environment that yeah. you're raising your kids in. And if you see that you guys are better mm-hmm. off not together, but can 
can co-parent and can still raise this child again to be able to make that hard call and say to yourself like I know what I have to do I know what's right you know there are plenty of people like it took I mean it took a long time it took me a couple years to finally like it'll be okay it's not going to be okay we can get through this it's only getting worse what are my options I don't have any options and it just shows how strong you are as as an individual and to me like I said it's just it's what it had to be done this fear of of it was never a fear of being a single parent of three boys because I had already been a single parent to two boys and I had done it clear across the country in a traumatic situation it took a long time to get there and and once I got there it's like okay this is this is what's best and it's better to have two happy parents separate than staying together and and the home is dysfunctional. Yeah. Because your boys are still getting to see like what a strong woman you are. Like the fact that you've gone through so much that you are such an exemplary role model for them that regardless of, you know, not having that male figure in their life every single day, they're getting both of it from you, you know, like, and that's perfectly okay too. Yeah. We're trying. We're trying. So Tara and I had uh, compiled a list of questions that are just like bigger questions. And one of the questions that we had was, honestly, you've had a lifetime of experience compared to most people I know our age, most people I know that are 10 years older than us, that are 20 years older than us. And at this point in your life, what would you say might be the most important life lesson you've learned so far? Oh, wow. Um... Probably just, I don't know, that is tough. Because like you guys have said, like what you see as a strength, I see as like, this is just what needs to get done. And I think so much of that strength comes from being a mom. Like if I had lost CJ and I didn't have the twins, I don't know how I would have survived it. If I didn't have my three boys at the end of the day that I was trying to set a good example for, I don't know if I would have gotten out of a, you know, a relationship that wasn't right for me. Maybe just trusting your gut and trusting that you're going to get through it. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are in tough situations, whether it be your career or your relationship or something going on with your family, or a lot of people right now are facing COVID. Right. You know, and just, it's just one day after the other and one foot in front of the other. And whether you think you can do it or not, you are doing it as long as you don't just completely stop and give up every day is moving in the direction that you need to be. It's funny that you just said that because Tara and I both said like, we're so thankful that you had Mm -hmm. your children because who knows what type of situation you would have been in if you couldn't put your full energy and love and just focus on them. Right. They kept me going. There were so many times they were two in a month Mm -hmm. when my husband was killed and they still need a bedtime and they still need, they are still going to get you up in the morning and they still need breakfast and they still need, you know, cartoons and coloring and ABCs and playing outside and three meals a day and how many snacks and, you know, they can't just get up and do that themselves. Right. What is it that you want to make sure that your boys know about CJ and how he lived his life and who he was? I hope that they really took to heart the the speech that I gave when we received his uh, Distinguished Alumni Award. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point of giving that speech at our high school last year, I've never done an interview on CJ. Um, I've never done a news report, an article, met with anyone. I always turned everything down. I hope that they learn from him. Wow. 
I mean, he just had such a presence about him. As a Marine, he had a strength to lead. And they followed. And how honorable he was in the way that he died. He died alone that day because he didn't want anyone else moving into that area. And instead of sending in a whole team and multiple people being injured or killed, he was the only one that went in. And the strength he had as a father, he was an amazing dad. It didn't matter how tired he was from training or deployments or the long work day or whatever it was. His, you know, he was a family man and, and those babies were his world. They really were. And I hope that somehow they're able to see the kind of man he was also with me because we were together for eight years. We never had an, an argument that ever caused a breakup. We just grew together and, and put each other first as a priority. And I know it sounds so simple, but it's not. I mean, you, you both have been in marriages and relationships and it, things just are so complicated now and they don't have to be. I just, I hope that the twins, you don't have to be all this show and this overly aggressive personality to make a difference in the world. He really was just that calm, strong, lead from the front kind of man, whether it was high school sports or in the war. He just, you know, he just was kind to everyone. That was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I think like that just hearing you tell us just, everything about CJ. It's so evident. Everything you want your boys to know totally are all things that I took away from listening to you tell your story. So I can only imagine, you know, when you're talking to him, to your sons, that that would 100% and more be the takeaway, you know, for them too. You know, they're in middle school and I met CJ in middle school Mm -hmm. and we're hitting those, those monuments of I did this with him Mm -hmm. at this age. And now I'm bringing you two through it at this age and doing it on my own is a whole nother set of challenges because you don't have that other parent to kind of, okay, how do we handle this? It's kind of like, okay, well, how am I going to handle this? And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, I got to try again. Do you see CJ in either or both of the boys? Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. And I also see my brother, which is very funny. They both have that kindness about them and that compassion and that empathy. And they both really do have that leadership quality, but they use it in different ways. So what would you do if one of them, you know, as they get older, comes to you and they want to join the military? Like, how would that make you feel, do you think? That's something that I had to accept and come to terms with probably when they were like three or four. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Someday one of them or both of them may want to go to finish the fight for their dad or to be like their dad and walk in his footsteps or that we still are so close to our Marine Corps family that they look up to those men and want to be like them. And obviously, as a mom, I'm going to worry because we have no idea what the status of our country is will be at that point. But just like I stood next to him, I'll, I'll stand next to them. That's, that's part of our story. And that's part of who we are. I mean, that's an incredible answer, really. I don't know that there is a better answer to, to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, here's another question, too, for you. Do you have any advice for young military wives? 
I mean, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would tell somebody that's walking into this at 18, at 20 years old? Have the talk as far as the what ifs. If something happens, what do you want me to do? How do you want to be remembered? How do you want us to honor you in that moment? Just do it once, do it briefly and move on, but have it because there were a lot of struggles that I went through because we didn't have that conversation. But you really just have to soak in every moment you have of them during the military because at any point they could leave, whether it be training, deployments, long days at work, God forbid they are killed in the war. You know, you don't know what the next day has. You can be perfectly content one day and the next day they move units. The next day there's an injury. There could be a training accident. There's just, there's so much that you don't know what you're up against and that you're so young. Just take every moment that you can because in the big I mean, in the big picture that's all you have like little arguments or bickering or you know trying to fight the schedule you can't change the military you go with it or you go against it and just go with it and <laughs> see what happens because <laughs> they're going to take you where you're going to be do you have looking back now at your story and where you're at right now do you have any regrets um do i have any regrets See, for me, anything that I've regretted has almost come off more as guilt in a way. Like, I regret that we never took family pictures. I have very few Mm -hmm. good pictures of us. I have tons of pictures of the kids playing on the floor with him with toys. Let me go ahead and stop you there for a second, sister. Because last night, I decided to stalk your Facebook page for a little bit. (laughs) 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 And... Obviously, through hearing your story, there's there's a couple different pictures that Tara and I stumbled across that I may have screenshot and sent over to her just to say, oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's one specifically where you are hugging CJ on the last deployment day and you have your eyes closed and you are hugging him and all it looks like that you are doing is literally saying, I love you, be safe, don't leave. Like, you can see that in a hug, you know? And Mm -hmm. then there's the pictures of you and CJ and Jack and Evan standing together on the last day as he was getting deployed, hugging each other. And, like, I don't care any picture-perfect in front of a barn, in front of some rustic whatever with some flannel shirt for your home matching. <laughs> Don't care. Those pictures are worth more than anything you could have ever possibly had done. Yeah, it was a very emotional day. It was it was tough. It's it's so common now and so popular now that, you know, you have engagements announcements, you have these amazing photographers for weddings, you have, you know, creative birth announcements and you have gender reveals and you have newborn f- portraits and you have family portraits and everybody has like you said those you know those professionally some natural some staged photos I have one picture from the only Christmas morning that we had together and it was completely dark and shadowed because of the Christmas tree lights and it's like I have one picture that's it like you you always want more you always wish there was more and so I, I just always regret and wish that there was more for those visual memories for the boys I guess our last question before we go into some fun little questions for you. Okay. (laughs) 
what do you hope the takeaway is of your story for everybody listening to this? What do you hope that they learn from this? Mm, Wow. I just keep going. Whether it's a good day or a bad day or a, a, a death, a birth, a celebration, a struggle, just keep going. You can stop and you can just give up, but you're not going to get anywhere. There's just, there's no point. Life is short. Life is way too short for dwelling on the drama or the problems. Like solve it. You have a problem, fix it. You have an issue, work it out and just keep going because you don't know what tomorrow's got in store for you. And that is excellent advice as well. <laughs> Honestly, Danielle, none of this could have been easy to share. We are so beyond thankful that you chose us to share this with. Of course. And honestly, we're confident that like everybody at home, like this will inspire you too. It inspired us. We've learned so much. I like, I mean, I've known Danielle for what, 13 years and I've yeah. learned so much about you, about your character, about strength, internal strength that we all have that you can tap into if you need to, you know, mm-hmm. that it, it is there. It um, is. But before we let you go, we have just a few fun pop questions for you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Tara, I'm going to let you ask that first one because I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> oh, all right. Are you ready? <laughs> I probably not. Underwear or commando? Oh, boy. Usually commando. <laughs> Toilet paper over or under? Under. Yes, under. And every single boy in this house flips it over. Every time. They cannot change the roll. I put it under, and then I come back, and it's over. <laughs> All right. What is the most ridiculous fact that you know? I know a lot of, like, useless just Yes, tell us something completely useless. I have known the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse song for 11 years. I have not gone a day in my life without hearing that for the last 11 years. Or like SpongeBob. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. Why? Every day. Every day. Well, hot diggity dog, we're going to go on to what's your stance on pineapple on pizza? Never tried it. Don't know if I would. Yeah, no, yeah, no, thank you. Right. All right. <laughs> I don't get it. So, Danielle, you're arrested. What do your friends and family assume that it was oh, for? Lord. I probably mouthed off at someone, <laughs> but I shouldn't have. Oh, I love that. I probably opened my mouth, and I shouldn't have, and it was to the wrong person at the wrong time. Fantastic. Well, Danielle, we cannot (laughs) thank you enough for joining us, for being our first guest and for sharing your story. And most of all, thank you for being unapologetically you. Thank you for having me. We are so happy you joined us and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Unapologetically You Podcast. And please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts so that we can continue to inspire you.